On this week's show, it's been powering cars for a hundred years, but with diesels, hybrids, and electrics becoming more popular, how many miles are left on the internal combustion engine? Coming up next on AutoLine This Week. Underwriting for AutoLine This Week has been provided by Borg Warner. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week. Today's discussion is going to be about powertrain, especially going into the future. Are we going to be driving piston engines or are they going away? How about fuel cells? And of course, what about battery electrics? Well, I've got three experts to talk about that today, including David McShane. He's the vice president of business development at a company called Ricardo, which is actually based in the UK, though David is not. Paul Whitaker is the powertrain and technical director for AVL Powertrain Engineering, the company, interestingly, that's based in Austria. And Dean Tomasek is the executive vice president and chief technology officer for FEV North America, a company which is based in Germany. So we've got a great representation from around the world. We're going to get some good viewpoints. David, I'm going to throw it out to you, but I'd, I'd ask uh, uh, Dean and Paul to, to jump in as well. Is there any life left at, uh, in the piston engine, or is it coming to the end of its life? Oh, there's plenty of life left in the piston engine. You know, even today we're looking at uh, boosted uh, technologies uh, f to improve fuel efficiency and uh, start-stop uh, generators uh, to improve fuel efficiency. Uh, looking forward, uh, we'll probably see more high boosting of engines, improving efficiency even further, even before we see, you know, the full advent of electric vehicles. So there's plenty of life left in the, uh, in the piston engine. Paul, do you see it the same way? And, of course, when uh, uh, David mentions boosting, he's talking turbocharging and supercharging. Yes, I think there's a lot of life left. I think we're seeing big efficiency improvements with engines uh, today and see the potential for a lot more in the future. I think they're still very inexpensive relative to the other options. And, of course, uh, the energy density of uh, gasoline and diesel is very hard to beat with uh, battery uh, storage. So I think there's a lot of life left. Okay, uh, and Dean, same question. No, absolutely. I, I agree with both of my colleagues here. Um, there's a lot of life left. I would call it more evolutionary than revolutionary. So there are small steps we take with already existing technologies, not only from a hardware perspective, but also from a controls perspective. Software development goes along with that. How we do we control these technologies and how do we make them work better interactively? But there is a lot of other technologies mm -hmm. still out there that as of now, it's still kind of too expensive, but we're getting there in order to meet all the legislative targets. Um, variable compression ratio mechanism is, for instance, one of them. That's still a pretty big hammer that is not in production yet, but we're getting very close. Okay, explain uh, variable compression, and, and how do you do that at a price that the average consumer can afford? Yeah. Well, first of all, let me say that the low-hanging fruit, so to speak, from a cost perspective is almost gone. So now in order to meet the next legislative hurdles in meeting fuel economy, meeting CO2 emissions, we have to look at pricier options. Um, variable compression ratio mechanism is such an option. What it does basically, it's a mechanism that based on speed, engine speed and load, it changes the compression ratio. It could be continuous, it could be a two-step mechanism, but what it allows you to do is basically run at part load with a high compression ratio, meaning the highest possible and over brake thermal efficiency you can have. And then when you need higher power as you increase the load in the engine, then you basically switch down to a lower compression ratio that mitigates knock, 
less enrichment, hence better fuel economy. Or, on the other hand, you could also say, with that, I could even push my power even further out. So it can be a fuel economy solution, it can be also a performance solution when we look at the high load operation. But it's a very good mechanism that can be incorporated into engines. We already have fleets running on the road, small development fleets, and it works very well. And I think that's part of, uh, one part mm -hmm. of the future solutions that we will see in production. Paul, what other technologies might we see that would extend the life of the internal combustion engine? Uh, there's a lot of work uh, ongoing to refine uh, the gasoline combustion process and uh, see further improvements from the turbocharged downsized engines we have today. I guess one of the, the leading technologies is millicycle, which provides a lot of the benefit that we'd see from increasing compression ratio. Wait, wait, wait. No, I, that's so, a new one on yeah, me. So What's millicycle? millicycle? <coughs> it's effectively a, a, a way of uh, increasing the expansion stroke so we can uh, get more efficiency out of the fuel uh, that, that we, we burn, uh, but reducing the compression ratio, which is what causes the engine to knock uh, by using uh, different valve timing events. So we find that maybe four, four to six percent further benefit over a typical downsized uh, direct injection gasoline engine. So you're getting a longer stroke out of the engine with this millicycle, yeah, or how does that increasing work? increasing the expansion stroke, but limiting uh, the pressures and everything that cause the engine to knock. Very interesting. Okay, mm -hmm. okay David, we've got uh, uh, two technologies here. What, what do you have on uh, up your sleeve, as it were? <laughs> well, I'd like to go back to the boosting. So we're seeing some boosting in um, engines today, but uh, we see going forward, maybe even to the 2025 time frame, uh, extreme boosting in engines and engine technology. What do you mean by extreme boosting? So uh, uh, Ricardo did a high boost demonstrator uh, where we were able to uh, take, say, uh, a baseline of a two-liter uh, natural gas, uh, two-liter um, naturally aspirated engine and replace it with a one-liter engine, so a 50% reduction actually in the engine size and get the same performance out of it by adding in uh, turbochargers, superchargers to actually boost the low-end uh, torque out of the engine and essentially get the same performance. Um, the, the whole use of electrification in this around the e-booster was around using uh, electrical energy intelligently. So instead of adding on expensive batteries or things like that, using uh, advanced lead acid batteries and, and even uh, super caps are, uh, to uh, recapture the, uh, the energy whenever you're braking so that you can actually put it right back into the electric supercharger. So uh, again, we're, we're seeing maybe 40% reduction in CO2 out of these types of technologies. So again, there's a long way to go in internal combustion engines. 40% reduction is a huge reduction in, mm -hmm. in CO2. But let me throw this out to the panel here then. Uh, I love turbocharged engines. I love the drivability that they give. But as you downsize these engines, you tend to be in turbo boost a whole lot more and it eats up a lot of the fuel economy savings. Is there a solution around that? Mm -hmm. uh, one of the solutions we've been looking at for a while is uh, electric uh, superchargers, as mm -hmm. I think uh, Dave mentioned there, where basically have a, an electric motor driving uh, uh, a, a compressor similar to that found on a conventional turbocharger, and then we can use that at low speed to improve torque momentarily. Mm -hmm. So that provides some big benefits and helps uh, a vehicle with a turbocharged engine uh, drive as though it was a naturally, naturally aspirated engine and uh, really help in terms of transient response and drivability. So you get the boost when you need it, yes. but then you don't have a parasitic loss when you don't need it. That's right. Yeah. When are we going to see this? Because electric turbos have been talked about for a number of years now. 
Well, I think Audi have plans, if they haven't launched it already, to launch this year with a, a, a diesel engine mm -hmm. in one of their performance vehicles. Yep. And then we expect to see more and more uh, with gasoline engines going forward, especially with the advent of 48 volt systems. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, go ahead, Dean. Yeah, uh, you're right, uh, 48 volts certainly is a big enabler when we talk about e-charging, but there are other systems, of course, you can basically mix and match any way you want it, with a turbocharger, with a supercharger, with an e-charger, you can have two-stage turbocharging, also there, just with the turbocharger, there's a lot of work going on, going from fixed geometry, waste-gated, to VTG, uh, technologies or variable turbine geometry that gives you more flexibility, especially with the Miller cycle where you want to have higher boost mm -hmm. at the low speed, low load. That is additional flexibility that was in the past kind of a no-go because of cost. The technology is kind of there, but it's very expensive. Some of the technologies where we look at EGR at higher loads, whether we look at variable compression ratio mechanism reduces the exhaust gas temperatures, which is what we want because we want to extract as much energy out of the exhaust or the gas inside the cylinders for the working cycle. Naturally, then it cools off more. That actually allows us then to apply technologies such as a VTG turbocharger, giving us more flexibility at lower cost. I was going to say we also find that some of these advanced boosting systems are very good in terms of uh, improving efficiency because they're, they're driven used, uh, using um, exhaust gas, so waste heat, and if we can recover some of that, then mm -hmm. we increase the efficiency of the engine. Yeah. So we have a lot of work ongoing looking at that. Right. And there right. are good examples out there for, for gasoline applications where we already look at two-stage turbocharging. We're looking at specific power output of 150 to 200 kilowatt per liter, which is if we go back yeah. five to ten years, they would have said you are crazy if you would have said that. Yeah. Nowadays, this is exactly what we're all working on, yeah, frankly speaking, and, and this is where we go. And it's just how can you get there with the best system, robust system? Is it a two-stage? When we look at diesel applications, there are systems out there now with four turbochargers. Mm -hmm. Two two-stage for a six-cylinder inline. I mean, it's all there. It all can be done. How do you control it? Again, controls, I think, very, very important. Um, people always underestimate the effort that is required in order to make it a nice package for the driver, smooth transition, good launch behavior. This is very important for the consumer as well. Uh, David, I'm intrigued by what you're saying of going to this, this hyper-boosting where you can cut the size of the engine in half. How small are they going to go? I mean, you're talking to a liter. There's a number of uh, engines out there that are just one liter in displacement. Mm -hmm. Elsewhere in the world outside of the U.S. market, that's not that uncommon. But I guess the question still stands, how small might we see engines get? So uh, we've already demonstrated uh, getting down to 50% reduction. People are even working on 60% reduction on uh, engine sizes already. I'd like to pick up on something that Paul was saying about 48 volts. I think that's an incredibly important mm -hmm. stepping stone as we move towards more plug-ins and, and to, to batteries, waiting for the cost of batteries to come down. 48 volt system is actually a key enabler to actually improving efficiency as well and getting weight out of the system as well as you add more electrification, intelligent electrification, so you use it back where the, where the engine is. So, so it's a big step forward and I think going forward in 2025 timeframe you'll see a lot more 48 volt systems actually onboard vehicles as we do go towards extreme downsizing two cylinder engines, three cylinder engines instead of what we have today. So when you talk 48 volt you're really talking a mild hybrid, right? Mild We're, hybrid, micro hybrid type technology. Explain that a little bit for those in the audience who don't understand it and 
I'm not capable of explaining it to them. Oh, okay. Well, well, certainly, you know, where you're adding an electrification towards um, the uh, the main uh, traction engine, you can add uh, electric boosting and uh, electric powertrains directly onto the the um, the main drive shaft of the vehicle. But but as you go through other configurations, we talk about P0, P1, P2, P3, P4. Those types of configurations move the electric motor assist further and further away from the engine, between the engine and the transmission, and clutch it, and then moving on to the other side of the transmission system. And that enables other features on board uh, uh, vehicles to either go into sailing mode, where you're actually uh, uh, taking the um, uh, internal combustion engine off the powertrain so that you can actually coast and get more efficiency out of, out of the system that way. And then moving the, um, the electric motor back actually onto the, the rear differential. So you're moving further away to get more benefits out of the system. So there's a long way to go with the introduction of 48 volt systems uh, onto powertrain. But it is a stepping stone between that and full plug-in hybrids and also battery electric vehicles. And Paul, I got to imagine the, the the reason for this move to 48 volt, which seemingly is going to go across the industry, is it's just a lot cheaper than going with a full strong hybrid or a battery electric. Yeah, exactly. It's all about cost-effective fuel economy and how can you uh, improve the efficiency over a 12 volt system, and uh, that means you can use more uh, electric uh, electric boost into the drive line or more energy recuperation from braking, and start to electrify some of the accessories on the engine and try and do that without going to the full cost of a much higher voltage uh, electrical system. I've heard, and I don't know if the, this ratio is right, that uh, a 48 volt system can give you something like 80% of the benefits of a, of a full strong hybrid, but for about 30% of the cost or something along those something lines. Like that. <laughs> uh, all these benefits are really you know, application specific mm -hmm. and it depends on how it's applied. You know, there are all these different uh, ways of electrifying and it depends where you put the motor and different benefits that we can see from different approaches, but that seems reasonable, maybe 6 to 8% benefit. At 6 to 8% is nothing to sneeze at there. these That's days, right. is it? Yeah, but uh, you look at you know, the, the OEMs they look in terms of uh, the cost per percent CO2 benefit and uh, that becomes very attractive. Mm -hmm. Dean, uh, about a decade ago, it seemed like everywhere I went in the industry, uh, the automakers were talking about HCCI, homogeneous charge compression ignition, where you kind of make a diesel engine, or I should say a gasoline engine behave more like a diesel right. engine. I haven't heard a whole lot of talk about that. Why not? Because it's very difficult to control. <laughs> yeah, I have to come back to controls. Um, but. It has a lot of benefits. Actually, variable compression ratio mechanism is an enabler for it because you significantly increase the operating range for a controlled auto ignition or an HDCI, pretty much the same thing. Um, but it is certainly difficult to control. Um, it only works very well at a low, in a lower speed and lower part load. Um, so you cannot expand it up to full load. That is not feasible. And, and that basically, with all the other advancements that have been made in other areas that kept it kind of a back burner, technology. It's still out there, people still work on it, but it's not the main focus right now. Hmm. Yeah, I think I would, I'd add that when people started looking at HCCI, uh, the advantage they were looking for was that you could run a gasoline engine lean, like a diesel engine, start seeing those benefits, mm -hmm. but the combustion process would reduce NOx emissions, uh, which are always a problem with lean operation, down to a level that you could get by without the expensive lean NOx after treatment. Mm -hmm. I think people have mm -hmm. found that that isn't 
actually true that you still need a good level of lean NOx after treatment and you yeah. still need to carry that cost. And yeah. as Dean said, I think it works very well in a region where we're moving engines away from operating these days by operating these uh, downsized engines. We're forcing them away from the, EG, uh, the region where HCCI works yeah. best. And like you said, I mean, NOx, yeah. that was clearly the yeah. hope. Mm -hmm. But you still deal with very high CO and hydrocarbon emissions as part of that. And, and, and that is also something that is difficult to deal with. Yeah. So again, it has its pros, but there are also cons. And right now, I don't see it. Hmm. What do you think about fuel? And, and David, let me start with you in the sense that uh, the internal combustion engine doesn't make all these emissions. It's the nasty stuff in the fuel mm -hmm. that causes all these carbon and NOx and other uh, GHGs and the like, you see the fuel changing at any time. I, I, I thought the EPA had an element as part of its CAFE standards that mandated a lowering of carbon in gasoline. That's a really good point, actually, John. Um, you know, certainly as you go forward, we could see that um, alternate fuels or lower carbon fuels will play a significant role. Um, perhaps even if we look at, um, you know, the introduction of higher um, percentages of ethanol, into gasoline and, and maybe one of the advantages without costing uh, more on the vehicle side is to look at uh, upping the minimum octane rating on fuels and allowing uh, OEMs to optimize the compression ratio in engines which would actually give a, an efficiency benefit without actually adding cost to the whole system. So you're absolutely right, the, the use of alternate fuels, the addition of, of ethanol blends um, would be a, a, a good improvement to actually drive efficiency. Paul, do you see that happening? I, I know in Europe you get higher octane fuels than you do here. I know the engine people here have been calling for higher octane. What, what are your thoughts of that ever happening and perhaps taking more of the carbon out of gasoline as well? Yeah, you're right there. I mean, uh, you can't buy regular grade gasoline in, in Europe anymore, so it's mid-grade or premium. Mm -hmm. uh, we're always hindered by the fact that we need to develop engines here to run on regular grade gasoline. and. Uh, because of the lower octane number, then uh, performance and fuel economy start to spiral downward. So it's a big challenge, and if uh, we could optimize engines only to operate on premium fuel, then life would be a lot easier for us, and we'd be able to uh, see much more of a benefit in terms of uh, efficiency. But I think it's going to be very difficult uh, to make the change, and especially when you look at the cost increase. I guess there's some precedent there, really, with uh, ultra-low sulfur diesel that was introduced, and that was all that's available from that point onwards. If we could do the same with premium fuel and have only premium fuel available, then that would be good. But you look at the difference between a gallon of premium fuel and regular, and it's significant. So it's it significant. very diffi difficult. It, it, no, it very much is. There's another precedent, too, because in the 1970s, we banned lead in gasoline. Yep. And there was a huge transition to go through in that mm -hmm. on both the refining and the engine yep. side, and we made it happen. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, yeah. But there is that cost issue, too, and the public doesn't want to see the cost of gasoline yeah, going up. I think the other thing is that ethanol. I mean, if ethanol was widely available, then our life as developers of gasoline engines would become much easier. We wouldn't need variable compression ratio on all of these technologies, and especially in terms of CO2 benefit, we would be able to compete very well with diesel, the mm. gasoline engines running on ethanol. Dean, any thoughts on that and fuel? Wouldn't you love to see less carbon in the fuel? Well, of course, everybody, I think, does. Um, there has been, like you said, a big push in the industry um, for high octane ratings. Um, Europe, I think, leads by example. Um, they are significantly higher than what we see here. Um, it is proven that you can gain several percent in improvement in fuel economy if you have higher octane rating fuel available. Um, I think it complements 
itself very well with other technologies. Coming back to the VCR technology, when you look at E100, for instance, as a fuel, let's go, let's go to the extreme. If you run E100 in the current engine, you have a fixed low compression ratio. If you take a flex fuel engine, that okay, would go up to E85. But what are you going to do? You're stuck with your gasoline-based mm -hmm. compression ratio. If you have a variable compression ratio, you can push it out much further, hmm. meaning you can generate much higher power. You can actually take advantage of the higher octane rating. The same thing is true for a CNG gasoline vehicle. Same thing there. Very high octane rating, 130. You cannot take advantage of it. You really can't mm -hmm. because you don't push your compression ratio out because you are fixed to the lowest possible allowable level, which is based on the use of gasoline. Uh, just to come back to your, your thoughts on uh, the low cost of gasoline, uh, maybe that's one of the challenges of today because low cost gasoline is part of the challenge of actually meeting the uh, CAFE requirements because consumer choice is being driven towards uh, larger vehicles and SUVs, and that's certainly in the midterm review. Uh, part of the challenge of actually meeting 54.5 miles per gallon uh, based on the current mix, which is now looking more like 50-50 instead of 67 against 33% of the, the larger vehicles. The EPA is now projecting that the uh, CAFE target for 2025 will be more like 50.8 miles per gallon. So I, I'm not one to advocate this, but maybe a higher price of fuel based on a higher octane rating might be a good thing to help drive uh, efficiency and, and consumer choice. Well, uh, David raised this. Uh, Paul, let me throw it to you. Do you think the industry can meet the 54.5 target with the, the uh, powertrain mix that it has right now? I think technically, yes. And I think with the technology, the technology that's been developed for the future, I think so as well. I think the, the challenge is, as Dave said, is you know, to produce vehicles that people want to buy, which is very difficult when fuel prices are so low. Dean, what do you think? Can they meet? Oh, can, can the industry meet this CAFE standard? Yes, I think they can. Um, of course, the public has made, has made it much more difficult at these fuel prices. Everybody is going towards an SUV. Everybody wants a pickup truck again. We have seen reverse developments few years late, a uh, few years back. But yes, it can be done. But it's getting more difficult if the fuel price stays that low. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, I read in the Wall Street Journal today, uh, a third of the gas stations across the country have um, gasoline at less than $2 a gallon. So it makes it extremely challenging. Mm -hmm. It really does. Although what I find so interesting, too, is this move to crossovers, because that's really where the big shift is coming, mm -hmm. is a global phenomenon. It, it's happening in Europe. It's yeah. happening in China. It, it, it's happening everywhere. Yeah. And uh, as you guys know, the, the price of fuel in Europe is significantly higher. It's three, four times mm -hmm. uh, what it is here. If, if gas is under $2 a gallon, it's definitely four times more expensive. And yet we're seeing a change there, too. So uh, we're, we're getting down to the, uh, the end here. Dean, I'll start with you. Uh, does electrification really start to take off at some point? Um, and I'm talking pure battery electric vehicles at this point. And, and if it does take off, when? So electrification, again, is a big term. If you focus on EVs, then it'll be further out there. Um, because when we look at 2025 and whether we are looking now at 54.5 miles per gallon and 163 grams CO2, or whether we look at maybe 50 or 51 miles per gallon, um, the engine technology that are out there still have a lot to offer. So there is some electrification, but certainly not to the extent of an EV in a wide sense. Um, Micro-hybrids, mild hybrids, maybe some strong hybrids, PHEVs, they will take off, but also at a lower rate. And hence, 
I can only reinforce what we said at the very beginning. The combustion engine has a lot of life left and it will be the main carrier, um, I believe, still towards 2025. Mm -hmm. And uh, how, do you, how do you see it there, Paul? I think uh, battery electric vehicles are you know, significantly much more, uh, more expensive than uh, the ICE engine alternatives, you know, maybe twice as much in some cases. And I think, it's, uh, I think the automakers realize it's difficult to pass that cost on to the customer. And I think they're absorbing some of that cost and it's very difficult to be profitable with those vehicles. So it's very difficult at the moment. I think uh, battery prices are going to come down and get to the point where it then becomes more economically viable. And at the same time, we need to see an increase in fuel prices for customers to really want to buy them. Mm -hmm. It's all going to happen. It's going to happen slowly. And uh, I'm not sure when we're going to get to maybe 10, 15 percent mm -hmm. market share, but it's uh, probably some time off yet. Yeah. David, uh, what were uh, your well, thoughts on Absolutely agree. And, and where we are right now is we're probably around 230 to, to $240 kilowatt hour on a battery pack that's, say, a 25 kilowatt hour battery pack. Until that gets down to more like $100 a kilowatt hour, uh, it, we won't see a main shift over to battery electric vehicles. So there's still a lot of work to do in lithium chemistries uh, to go forward to get that pricing down. And that's the main trigger to actually opening the, the floodgates to actually all moving towards electric vehicle. But, but there's some disruptors out there too. Uh, the introduction of iMobility type things, uh, shared mobility. You know, there may be some disruptors that actually pull these uh, on-demand services further forward. So uh, the future's unwritten, but there's certainly enough game changers out there to, 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 to move things forward. Paul, that's a very interesting thought. Do you, do you think this whole move to mobility could change the choices in powertrain? I think the, the changes with mobility and rideshare schemes, for example, maybe combined with uh, some level of autonomous driving is going to change the requirements. And it's going to, certainly going to change the requirements for the powertrain. Hmm. and open up some opportunities for improved uh, efficiency. Dean, your thoughts on uh, mobility and the impact on powertrain? I think we will see an increase there clearly, but it will also highly depend on what the customer really wants. If I look at an autonomous vehicle that I use every day on the same basis, then I would select one powertrain. If I want to take that vehicle out on the weekend though and I drive on a nice curvy road and I want to be in control mm -hmm. and I want to drive it and I want performance, that changes the whole picture. So what does the customer want? That will drive the selection and there will be a lot of diversity. In general, what we see is much more diversity, many more options as we have ever seen in the past. And it will come down to what the customer wants and what he's willing to pay for. And I think with that, we're going to have to wrap this up. But I think that's a good point to make. It's what the customer wants that's going to drive what we actually end up having. With that, I have to thank you all. David McShane, Paul Whitaker, Dean Tomasek, thank you so much for coming on and talking about where we're going in the future with the powertrains and automobiles. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you. Underwriting for Autoline this week has been provided by Borg Warner.